ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good morning. We have a special show today that was rescheduled from last week, and I am so excited to welcome back Karen Huff. Karen uh, was on the show uh, some time ago. Karen, what year did you come out with your other book? 2011. 2011. So, yeah. wow, it's been three years already. Uh-huh. We, we were just chatting before we got online that uh, that other show that is on Solutions Live is still being accessed, and, and it really was timeless content. Karen, why don't, uh, before we jump into talking about that book and then, then your most current book about presentations, um, tell us a little bit about yourself first. Uh, sure. And by the way, it's so much fun to be back with you, Chickie. Uh, oh, it's, it's I so enjoyed talk. last time. And yeah. I'll go into that a little bit when we're talking uh, about your former book. <laughs> so, um, so I've had an interesting story. I've had an interesting life. I'm, I'm eternally grateful. I started out at Yale and I learned to do improv comedy there and I went on to make it a career. I was so incredibly fortunate to train with the Second City in Chicago, and I performed there and also performed with groups that I helped to, to found. I had wonderful luck in getting to do movies and TV and radio and live theater. So I just had a super career for a number of years. I had a great agent. And when I got married and moved to New York, I, I have to tell you, I was really ready for something new. I'm, I'm someone who, who needs stimulus. I need to try new things. I need to give my brain a stretch. And that was the beginning of the crazy sort of Internet age. And Silicon Alley, which was New York, was incredibly ripe for all sorts of things. And believe it or not, without any background, I went into network engineering IT. Uh, so it was a <laughs> that always slays me. <laughs> I, I know. I know. So thank goodness I had improv skills because I was cramming every night to try to be able to be effective as an executive there. But what I found is that those improv skills that were part of my DNA helped me to be very successful in business. So when I kind of finally left that industry quite a few years later, I talked to Wharton Business School and they agreed to help me um, sort of look at the ideas of how the Improv behaviors from the stage are also found in high-performing leaders and teams. So Improv Edge is the company that I founded, and what we do is we change behavior. We improve and change behavior by providing corporate training that uses improvisation as the catalyst. So not only do we use improv within our workshops, but we also look at the neuroscience and the psychology behind it, and it's really incredibly impactful and very engaging for our participants. So well, I, I have to share with our listeners, uh, back in 2011, when your, your book came out, I had been, um, I had taken a break from consulting for a while and had just taken on a new client and I didn't know anything about them and I was asked to come in and facilitate their board meeting. And I had to go out to Las Vegas prior to that meeting and uh, I, I picked up a copy of your book because I was going to be interviewing you. And, you know, I mean, I, I always try to make it all the way through the books uh, before the interview, but because I was doing interviews sometimes uh, twice and three times a week, it, it was a little bit hard to do much more than just skim over it. But I read your book 
from Las Vegas to Miami cover to cover, <laughs> and thank God I did because I had to walk into that client's office the next morning and be prepared to do this, and I used your book as my Bible for that session, and it was incredibly successful. And then I came right back and did the interview with you, and it was so much fun because it was so fresh for me. Right. So uh, for those that want to go back and, and listen to that show, um, you can just search for Karen's name and Solutions Live, and uh, it was just called The Improvisation Edge, which was the name of her former book. So Karen, tell us a little bit about your new book, and, and it has rather an odd title, and uh, you know, I, I, I know why you were the best person uh, to actually write a book about breaking the rules, and you talk a lot about <laughs> making mistakes and uh, how, how to actually be the best bad presenter ever. So talk to me a little bit about how the book came to be. Sure, sure, you bet. Um, and there's actually even a video posted out there where I talk about uh, my publisher actually coming to me with the idea. They they saw me. They sent a few folks to see me speak to about 1,800 people in San Francisco one time. And as you know, the presentation skills book market is a little bit crowded. But right. as they talked to me about it, and we discussed sort of my philosophy behind it, we really felt like we had found a completely fresh approach to thinking about how we present and how we are authentic. And really, I've, I've now trained over a 1,000 people, Chicky, in, in executive wow. presence and presentation skills. And what we discovered is that, you know, people arrive and they think that they're bad. They think they're bad presenters, <laughs> but they're really not. They're just following these old moldy, outdated rules of presenting that make them very stiff and uncomfortable that don't actually allow them to be themselves. And so the book is really organized around breaking a lot of the very, you know, widely held beliefs that you must do if you're a presenter. And once you break them, we sort of look at what is the option here? How can you authentically be yourself? How can you come out and really influence people far better than you could if you were doing exactly what you're told or trying to be someone else? And so... The book is called Be the Best Bad Presenter Ever, Break the Rules, Make Mistakes, and Win Them Over. And we're, we're incredibly excited. It's been such an incredible process, just even the cover, um, going out to my community for the title. There's so many stories behind it. <laughs> well, I know uh, that titles are often a, a point of contention mm-hmm. with publishers because they have one idea for a title, and I didn't know that you went out to your network to come up with this title. And at least in the in the advanced uh, galley copy that I have, uh, on the front is is a a chicken, or I guess a, a rooster, or something, <laughs> some piece of poultry. <laughs> it's a rubber chicken. Okay, a rubber so, chicken. Okay, thank you for yeah, the clarification. <laughs> So I have actually, this is something I love about working with Barrett Kohler. They're incredibly collaborative. They really believe in in involving the community. So for both books, for both the title and the cover, we have gone out to their community, my community, anybody who would take a survey. And the community always chooses the title and the cover. And i got to tell you, every time I'm surprised. When that rubber chicken was in the, was in the group of potential covers, I thought, oh, I'm not even going to look at it. There's no way. And it was the landslide winner. The oh, landslide wow. winner. There is, there is well, something about that kind of goofiness, that, that sense of, I, I've had so many people interpret it for me. One woman said, oh, yeah, I feel like a total chicken, but maybe your book will give me courage. Oh, well. 
You know, yeah, and so it, it catches people. It shows them that the book is a little bit cheeky. It, it's definitely looking at things from a different viewpoint, but it also believes that you can be yourself and be really, really effective. Well, and I love that because I, I do a lot of, of public speaking, and I yeah. I so enjoy it. And when I get in the moment, uh, you know, I just hit the stage and, and go. But when I go back, if it's ever recorded, and even with these radio shows, you hear how many times you, you know, say the ums and, and the filler uh, phrases, and that's that's really my only thing about uh, the thing that I'm self-conscious about. But I love how you start this book because you you really start with the whole preparation phase and the baddest way to prepare uh, and that you really need to start breaking the rules before you hit the stage. So talk to us a little bit about what you do to break the rules. Sure. And and by the way, bad in this context is bad like Michael Jackson's bad. Like, awesome like bad, bad to the bone. Yeah, exactly. So we, we use that throughout the book. You know, preparation is what is missing from almost every presentation that doesn't do as well as you want it to. And, you know, I had a gentleman come up to me after one of our workshops, and he was laughing, and he kind of rolled his eyes and said, wow, I was hoping that you would give me a silver bullet and make me wonderful so that I would never have to prepare, but what you taught me is that preparation is the silver bullet. Um, and, And that's really the truth. So there are a couple things we have to figure out. First of all, what are you passionate about? What do you care about? It takes a little bit of time to maybe look at a boring quarterly report or even something that you care about and say, you know, why am I standing up? Why, why am I actually presenting? Because if we just needed to transfer information, we would send memos. The reason that you're standing up is because you want to influence an audience. You want to make a difference. You know, you, you want to be heard. And, and they want to see you. So figuring out that you are able to be there so that you can move people to do something is incredibly important, and that's your purpose. So there's there's some really some thought that first goes into figuring out how to prepare, and it's kind of a bit of a list in there. We want you to break the rules around just walking in and dumping a bunch of information. There is nothing worthwhile about that because, again, that's just like a standing-up right. memo. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we want you to take some time to think about, you know, if, if the perfect outcome were to have my boss give me a promotion because I do so well, or to have the committee raise our budget by 10%, or have, you know, the PTO decide to buy these instruments for the children, wherever you might be presenting, or have kids decide to build go-karts, whatever group you're talking to, right. you need to know what that is. And you need to know if you want to inspire them, if you want to motivate them, if you want to maybe anger them. We've seen a lot of politicians use that kind of of action and emotion. And, And to think about what do I really want to have happen, that's the first most important thing for me. Well, and you know, it's it's funny because I'm not sure I've ever thought that through uh, because I present because I'm asked to present. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. You're, you're making an excellent point that maybe that's been my missing link of why I am self-conscious because I don't know what my goal is. Well, you know, thank you for saying that because you're not alone. We have all done this, Chicky. Every single one of us has just been asked and we're thrilled and we just want to do a good job. But right. if you back it up, part of being able to do a good job is say, wow, I have this opportunity to really do something here and how am I going to do that? 
Um, and, and I think you've also hit on something else there, and that's thinking about who you're presenting to. Yes. Right? So part of your research and part of your decisions around what you'll say and what stories you'll tell have to do with who is in the audience. You know, I've seen presenters present to an audience of third graders. I've, right. I've seen them present to an audience of scientists at a summit. I have myself presented to that wide a range of people before, everything from corporate to parents to nurses to, um, goodness, engineers, on and on, right. to healthcare professionals, to steel workers. So what's their frame of mind? What are they exactly. wanting from this, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, when I was just in Poland, uh, it was a very, very unique mission trip because we were actually doing a pastor's conference. And oh, the cool. place where we stay uh, is a, a hotel that was formerly owned by the Russian mafia. And oh out of these 50 pastors, at least half of them were former Russian mafia. And so these are not your father's pastors, right? These guys, you know, still dress in black, and, I mean, they look every bit the part. And I was asked to speak to them about social media. And, I mean, it was great fun, but you're right. You have to really change up the, your, your stories to match the audience. So that one was great fun. Wow. Wowie, wowie. That, that's a perfect example. You had to completely rethink what you were going to present. Right. And how right. you were going and so to get... You, you talked about giving informational presentations, and, and so for me, I was helping them relate how you communicate in everyday life, and that if you can master that, then you can communicate online, but you can't figure it out kind of the other way around. So right. being informational is, is one of your key premises on, on how to break the rules. And and so how do you help people extract the kind of information and you mentioned stories and that's a very powerful method of communicating. Well, there are a couple things uh, and again, still in the preparation arena is that you never want to just go in and dump a bunch of information and hope they know what to do with it. You can be very intentional about what you're doing there. Um, and one of the ways is to get their attention. So you want to have a great opening and a really great closing. Those are called bookends. And the information that you choose to present should all be driven by your purpose. Because sometimes people have too many extraneous pieces of information that don't really uh, have the impact that they want it to. So, for example, you were speaking to this very interesting group. You, you don't want to start telling stories that's going to confuse them or take them off in the wrong direction. You want to really have it focused. You tell stories that make sense. You use anecdotes that make sense. You think about how can I really reach these people and provide information in a way that will stick, that will make it right. something they'll remember. Very, very, uh, you know, I, I realize that uh, I actually do that. I, I don't think it through, and I think it's it's really helpful to take a look at a book like this and and you know how it lays out um, the plan for for getting ready. And I, you know, again, some of these things maybe we do without thinking, but if we actually can see them uh, in writing, it, it helps to crystallize that. So your your next step that you talk about is is actually practicing in front of a mirror. And I, I have to admit. <laughs> I am not a practicer because I never write out what I'm going to say. <laughs> well, okay, so practice is actually pretty critical. And you don't have to write out what you're going to say. But the key here is to practice on your feet 
and out loud. Um, practicing in front of a mirror is a rule that people think is true, and it's actually one of the worst things that you can do. Now, if you want to practice once just to sort of see what you look like or think about some new ways to move your arms, that is totally fine. But when people continue to practice in front of a mirror, it totally changes the way that they feel when they stand up because a mirror basically stops your energy. You get used to watching yourself. You get all nervous watching yourself, and you become self-focused. And in a presentation, to truly be impactful, you want to be audience-focused, right? So right. the mirror is, is basically making you more self-conscious, ironically. It's not really helping you at all. It's important to break away from that mirror. And when you practice out loud and on your feet, you need to do it maybe in an open room. You need to do it where um, there's perhaps a friend who's going to watch you and give you some feedback so that you can practice making eye contact. You can see what it's like to maybe look at a couple of faces. That is absolutely the best way to truly practice. And it is amazing how much just one run-through can change the efficacy of your presentation. Um, There is a wonderful quote that I use, Anne Lamott, wrote in her book, Bird by Bird, that, that authors always have one horrible draft, that their first draft is always awful. And I think that we've forgotten that our first try at almost anything is awful. It's supposed to be. It's called right. sort of a stumble through, right? So, so you don't want to submit your audience to your first awful stumble through. Just get up on your feet, run your presentation, and the next time you do it, you will be better no matter what. Right, right. Well, you know, and I know that that's true because I have given the same general talk to different audiences, and you're absolutely right. The second time I give it, I've had the experience of watching the expressions or where you thought you were telling a joke or something that should have elicited a laugh and it didn't. Um, So I'm going to have to be disciplined and try that. And I think really, Karen, the reason I haven't done it is I've got one lingering bad memory of a talk that I gave in, I think, in Argentina. Uh And I was told that I had to write it out, and I had to give it word for word. And that was the worst talk I've ever given, because I kept looking up at the audience from my written script, and then I couldn't find where I was. (laughs) Oh, I'm so... that You know what? That is such a telling story. You have so much experience in this arena, Chickie. Um, That's such a telling story, too, of a rule. They bound you to something that you felt like you had to do. Right. Um, There must have been some compliance issues or something, right, that that they had to know exactly in advance what you were going to say. Was that it? Well, it was either that or it was because I was in another country and English wasn't their first language. They wanted Mm -hmm. to make sure that they had a script that they could translate, perhaps, Mm -hmm. and distribute Mm -hmm. later. Mm. You know, I bet it still would have been okay if you had sort of covered the general gist of it for the most part. Wouldn't you have felt better if you could have, you know, given yourself the okay to move away from that script? That's tough. Oh, completely. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, one of the rules that that you highlight book, which uh, I love because it, it is one that you definitely need to break, is picturing your uh, your audience in their underwear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Okay, so have you heard so that? So this is not a good thing, right? Yeah. So has somebody told you to do that ever? <laughs> no, no. Okay. You <laughs> I have heard am- it, though. <laughs> right. You would be amazed how many people have been told that if they're really nervous, they should picture the audience in their underwear. And the idea is that, you know, it'll tickle them, it'll, it'll make the audience seem less intimidating. 
that is so wrong. It doesn't. It makes you more nervous, and it leaches your energy away and makes you distracted, and it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> this is actually right. one of the most intense chapters of the book because in talking about the audience, just as we did before, they're the reason that you're there. And you don't want to distance them or think of them as anything other than what they are. You want to connect with them any way that you possibly can. You want them to be happy and comfortable. You want them to be able to hear you properly. You want them to be in a seat that they can see you from. Uh, I mean, there are all sorts of things I talk about around speakers taking responsibility for the environment that their audience is in. And, and I think a lot of us feel like we can't. Boy, I, I am so over that because my audience has to be able to have a good experience in order for me to be effective. And I right. sat in rooms where I couldn't hear, it was dark, it was stuffy, um, the the speaker you know, was in a bad space on stage, the lights were down so you could see the screen but not the speaker, all sorts of silly things like this. Right. And so I really take control of any room or stage that I can. I come early. I check things. I tell them to pull the lights up. I, I, I wrap up wires. I get rid of trash. I move right. tables. Anything to make the environment for my audience the absolute best it can be so that I can focus on them, they can focus on me, and everybody has a good time. Right. You know, one of my uh, presentations that I was the most scared about going in uh, was actually one to a, a company that had hired me, and they had just acquired uh, another company, and, and they mm-hmm. were merging. And I had, uh, again, read a book on the way there, and it occurred to me that merging companies is a little bit like everybody having a different page from the book, and and that they couldn't get the whole story yeah. if if they didn't all work together. And so I actually took the book and tore out all the pages and put a page on each chair <laughs> because yeah. I, I needed something to connect with them about, and I, I wasn't sure how I was going to accomplish that. And, and just, again, taking that physical action. I mean, the pages were worthless to everybody, right? And, you know, and I lost a $20 book, but um, <laughs> I ended up giving, I had another copy of the book, and I ended up giving it to the CEO and saying, you know, here, you know, you've got the whole picture. You need to make sure that your team's all on board and that they understand. So that was my that was my close. Um, so I, I think that that one is so important. And and whether you know someone in the audience or can or can ask, you know, whoever sponsored you to sit where you can see them so that you can at least connect with them. Um, you know, that's been my experience of of how to make myself more comfortable and as a result making them more comfortable. You know, I have to thank you for two things. Number one, thank you for sharing such a creative way of trying to connect with your audience and help them have a breakthrough, right? You were there to help them understand a very difficult time, a merger an unbelievably upsetting and anxiety-ridden time. Right. And that simple analogy around, you know, right now we all only have about a page and we don't know the whole story, but our leaders are going to help us get there. That right. that had to have given them some comfort and given a great idea to the CEO, number one. And number two, when you first started telling that story, Chicky, you admitted that you were really fearful. And fear well, is something I was. That, right. Every presenter mm-hmm. deals with that fear, and we talk about it a lot in the book, and I give all sorts of techniques, not only physical but mental, to help you manage it. 
because right. we all have it. I still do. As a matter of fact, I think the day that I don't get a little nervous and fearful, I'll probably stop speaking because it right. might mean that I don't care, you know? Well, yeah, and um, you had mentioned that sometimes you're, you're actually wanting to create anxiety. The content of that particular talk, they wanted me to tell uh, both sides um, of what the marketplace really thought of their products. Because wow. I was an industry expert on their particular, you know, they were competitors. And so the, what was said in the middle of that, you know, giving them the page and, and handing out the book at the end, it wasn't very well received because half of the room, you know, was being told that they're, you know, that they weren't as good as they thought they were, right? But you were um, delivering a tough message too. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think in particular when you do when you're not just up there to entertain, you know, or, or to deliver uh, educational information, when you're really up there to give a tough message, I think it's even more important to do that. Um, you know, I want to move on a little bit here, Karen, uh, because you you talk in the next section of the book about how you are the presentation. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think that that is so important that, you know, e- even if you've been asked to give a presentation to an audience that you have never connected with before, and one of my good friends is, is Libby Gill, and I, I know a couple of times last year she was asked to speak to people at uh, funeral home conventions. And, I mean, that's not her world at all. Um, but the fact of the matter is, uh, whatever they asked her to to deliver, she was the message. Yes, there is this funny thing that goes on, and people say, "Send me the presentation," and everybody thinks that it's a PowerPoint deck. <laughs> right. The, the presentation is the person. It's not the materials. It's not the flip charts. It's you, and exactly. we've completely forgotten that. Right. All the visual aids, everything else is a backdrop to us. We are the reason that they are there to see a human being speaking. So there is so much power. And and as you look through there, Chick, you'll see I talk about body and voice and all the things that we have at our disposal to be the most impressive thing that we can be. And um, there's also, of course, a chapter on PowerPoint and where it belongs. Where it belongs is as a backdrop. There are a lot of suggestions that I make around simplifying it, maybe getting rid of it completely, certainly never letting it be the expert because the moment that you turn around and start reading a slide or letting it speak for you, you have stopped being the expert and the one who influences, and you want to be in the spotlight. Right, right. Um, I want to back up just a little bit because one of the things that you you really highlight in this book is about how to how to open and close. And you you already gave us some suggestions there, but conventional wisdom would say that you open with your introduction of why you're qualified to be there and why you're the one. And I will tell you that is the classic mistake I made at that presentation where I was having to give the bad news. I spent time telling them how I had interfaced with each of their companies, and and I made it all about me. Even though I was the presentation, I spent too much time on that. Um, The other uh, conventional wisdom about opening and closing is is to open it up for questions. And, you know, is that ever the right thing to do? Is it always the right thing to do, or is it just a bad idea? Uh, no, it's, it's actually an okay idea. So, so let's, let's go, go about this backwards. Questions, well, here we go. Bookends is what I call them, the opening and the closing, right? There is a lot of um, neuroscience and psychology around recency and primacy. So 
people will always remember the first thing you said and the last thing you said much more than a lot of the stuff in the middle. And those are your two most important moments to make yourself memorable, to grab their attention, to engage them. So, for example, if you close with questions, the worst situation of closing with questions sounds like this. So you've finished a fabulous speech, right? You've done a wonderful job. And then you or a moderator walks out and says, okay, any questions? And there might be a couple, and you kind of answer them. And then there's a moment where you say, any more questions? Any more? No? Okay. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> right? So it's always good to let an audience ask questions if they do, if they want to, because it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. I even, um, I'm a contributor to the Huffington Post, and I wrote an article about how important it is as an audience member to take the opportunity to ask a question if you can. You can, you can find it out there. But here's the thing. If you're the speaker, you want to control that close. So to me, it would sound something like this. When, when someone has finished answering all the questions and, and the last person has sat down, you say something to the effect of, let's say I was speaking to um, the city council. I could say, thank you so much for your questions. And please, tomorrow, I ask you, vote for our city parks. City parks make our world livable. They are what inspired me to become a park ranger. And without our city parks, I wouldn't have the career I do. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> right? So you've, you've given them a strong call to action, and you've controlled the clothes. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, so on the other end of this, in the opening, of course, you want to do the same thing. You, you don't need to walk out and introduce yourself. You can walk out and say, how many of you ate breakfast this morning? Raise your hand. And you'll immediately have people engaged. Or right. you could say some marvelous statistic, something startling about what you're going to speak on so that you grab their attention immediately. And then after you have them, you can say, you know, hey, I'm Karen Huff. I'm here to speak about hearing loss in the United States or whatever your topic might be. Right. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> so let, let's talk about the, the subject of confidence because, you know, you and I do professional speaking and mm-hmm. get paid uh, to come in and speak. A lot yep. of people are just asked to get up and talk at a meeting uh, or maybe present some idea or concept at their church or at the school. And, you know, if they don't have the confidence of standing in front or worse, have that abject fear of standing in front of people, what do you tell them? Well, there are several ways to address this. And uh, the first, of course, is breathing. So I talk a lot about the importance of oxygen. I've seen a grown man in a suit pass out on stage because he didn't know how to breathe and got nervous. So uh, our body gives us physical reactions to nerves. It's, It's a natural human reaction. And the more we're aware of those reactions and understand that they're going to happen, and the less we fight them, the better off we are. You're going to get, you might be a person who gets dry mouth. Another person might have shaking hands. Another person might sweat. I happen to get a little redness on the side of my neck, and I get hot right there, you know, when I'm nervous. Some people have butterflies in their tummy. And the key is to understand that they're happening and say, oh, well, I may not be able to stop them, but I can channel them because that means you have energy, it means you have adrenaline, and breathing very deeply and calmly beforehand, finding some kind of breathing technique is really critical to managing nerves. Um, Now, 
secondarily, which I just find fascinating and I adore this work, is the current work being done in neuroscience around the very topic of confidence. And I, I looked at some studies by Paul J. Zak and, of course, the amazing Amy Cuddy. I got to meet her in Boston. She's, she's featured in that article I mentioned earlier about asking questions. And Amy Cuddy's research and Paul Zak's uh, research on oxytocin show that for all of our sort of lives, we've always thought it was mind over matter, right, Chicky? Did your mom ever say, well, you know, just tell yourself you're confident and you'll be fine? Did she ever say that? Right, right. <laughs> right, exactly. Believe it or not, it's the opposite. Your body can tell your brain what to do. And what they've discovered is that if you hold yourself sort of in a tall, confident pose and you take up a little extra room, or people maybe who lean back and put their feet on a desk start to have a higher level of testosterone in their system. Now, this is a hormone that occurs naturally in both men and women, and it's linked directly to confidence, to risk-taking, to um, higher volume of voice, for example. And the opposite hormone is called cortisol. Now, if you've heard of cortisol, it's terrible. It it makes you stressed. It's linked to memory loss. It's linked to um, feelings of depression, for example. And cortisol raises when you... Actually, this is also a gender thing, Chicky, right? If you, if you cross your legs and you cross your arms over yourself and you look down and you get all tiny, your cortisol right. levels go up. So, you know, Amy Cuddy in one of her talks that I got to see talked about the effect of doing that right before an interview, which is exactly what people are sitting in the waiting room, all crammed in on themselves, looking at their phones on a tiny screen and and nervous. And what they should be doing is maybe going to the stall in the bathroom and standing up tall and holding their arms out and putting their chins in the air because it makes a huge difference in how you come across. Very, very interesting. Now, we we talked in the preparation section about, you know, what you say, about the information that you're disseminating. But one of the rules uh, that you talk about breaking is that what you say is the most important thing. Yes, it's actually not the most important thing. It's how you say it. So what you say certainly is critical. That's how you're delivering information. But along with your body... Right? You want to be confident on stage. You want to use your body with impact. You also need to use your voice. I feel like so many folks uh, have not considered their entire self as a tool. Well, as a presenter, you really have to consider that. Your voice is part of your toolkit, the way you hold your body, the way you move, your eye contact, everything. Your information, your brain, it's all part of your toolkit. And so in addition to the breathing exercises, we also talk about ways to make your articulators work better, to warm up your voice, um, and, and it's amazing how much it can affect people. If your voice is really well articulated, many of the volume issues that people come into go away with that. So we just give people some great, easy-to-try exercises to stretch you maybe a little out of your comfort zone, but have you try something new to be more effective. Well, and, and the other things that you talk about, and you mentioned eye contact, and we, we've talked about it in several different ways of, of, you know, getting somebody friendly who you know in the audience so that you can have that eye contact. But, mm-hmm. but one of the rules is actually to scan the back wall to stimulate <laughs> eye contact as if you're looking at people when you're right. really not. And, right. and also standing behind the podium, which, you know, is one of the things I greatly object to when they don't have a lavalier mic or, or a, a, a wireless mic at least where you can walk around because I'm I'm a walker. Yeah. So talk to me about those two things. 
Sure, sure. Um, it's funny. We just finished that. We're doing videos for the book, as a matter of fact. So at the end of every chapter, there's a video that you can access uh, oh, on, on cool. our website, improvedge.com. I know it's going to be neat. And the one on simulating eye contact just made me laugh out loud. Uh, a couple of the improvisers who work with me, we're showing what it looks like. This is actually a rule that so many people in my classes have been told, that if you're too nervous looking at people's faces, you just scan the back wall above their heads, and people will think you're making eye contact. And, and no, one, no one believes it. Everyone knows that you're faking it. Everyone knows you're faking it, and it really pulls down your efficacy because they know that you're not connecting with them. So I understand it is hard to look in people's faces sometimes. And so what you do is you you make real eye contact, and then maybe you look away for a minute and kind of take your breath, look at your notes, and then go back and make eye contact with a new person for a few seconds and keep trying until you can continue to make effective eye contact. Um, and, oh, my, took you the podium thing, I'm just with you. I, <laughs> I called it a big chunk of boring. If there's any way you can avoid using it or lean on it, or move around it. Have you ever been on a stage where they nailed it to the center front of the stage? <laughs> no. I have been. It was unmoved. It was exactly nailed where I most didn't want it to be. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I do the, if I have to be on a podium, I, I definitely stand on the side of it, you know, yeah. and just, just have my, my right arm uh, not leaning on it, but, you know, resting on it. Um, and, you know, it is nice if, if you do have slides and they don't have a monitor in front of you to where, you know, you, you can see your, your um, at least your outline. Um, it's nice to have it there. But, uh, boy, I, I love being untethered. That's, that's my favorite way. And, again, you know, I think for people who are terribly nervous um, – that, you know, if they can walk around and if they can build into their presentation uh, stories, which is, is kind of the next thing I know that you talk about in the book, that there's this, this um, thought that especially if you're giving an informa- informational or educational uh, presentation, that it's really important to go through and explain each topic. And then, of course, there's always the PowerPoint slide that goes with that topic. And so if you get super nervous, that's when people start reading slides, and that's when right. you lose everybody, right? So right. How, if you're not a natural storyteller and, and you haven't been uh, on, on the stage of Second City and, and doing improv, can you give us some ideas of how to um, comfortably tell stories so that, that it sounds like you're sharing with friends and not with a, a room full of 500 people. Absolutely. And, of course, this comes back to practicing it. And I think some people may feel like they can't share personal stories or stories that happen to them. So what right. I would say is find stories that inspire you. Maybe it's from the news or it could even be a children's fable that might be a perfect example of, of something you're trying to talk about. Um, I've had a lot of people use analogy very, very effectively. Mm-hmm. You can use historical stories, which are very effective. So if you take those stories, and sometimes for me, I like to visualize somebody that I really care about that I'm telling the story to. And that helps to strip away the pieces that maybe have some corporate speak in it or are too formal, and think about telling it as if you're talking to that special friend. Right. That really can change how you, how you deliver it. 
Well, and you know, it's so interesting because when I was in, in Poland on, on this mission trip, I, I started off sharing just that, uh, a historical story that wove into my own family and how here I was on a mission trip and I had always said that I was the only one in my family that wasn't a missionary because I had uh, my grandparents uh, on my mother's side were missionaries in North Korea and oh, my wow. mother was born in Pyongyang and my father was, uh, his parents were miss, uh, missionaries in uh, in Brazil. And so I was able to tell that story. And my own parents were missionaries in, in Portugal. And wow. um, so it, it allowed me to get more at ease. And, and so I think you're right. If, if you can pull that in, it not only serves to connect you, but when you start telling that story, you, you really do relax. You really do. You really do. And I guess the one word of caution I would say is that I saw a lovely lady uh, speaking this week, and she was really super, very down-to-earth, um, and she told quite a few stories from her past. I think, again, I could tell that I don't think she stood up and did those out loud because they took up such a huge percentage of her talk, and we were there to hear about her expertise in another area. Uh. But she, she, had, she sort of was telling them, off the cuff, and they became very long. Mm. And in one telling, she would have done that and sort of looked at the clock and said, oh, my goodness, I just spent 20 minutes talking about myself. Um, they're right. all good stories, but I can certainly do them in a much shorter amount of time. You know, she would tell exactly. us entire lines of dialogue from when it had happened. And so, oh, no. So, so <laughs> yeah, but, but they were still good stories, right? They just needed editing. So this combination right. of, uh, I, I just love the idea of you, you drew in your audience by letting them know this was meaningful to you and you told a family historical story. So, again, if we do that and we try it out loud, we realize, oh, gosh, I can make that even more impactful by maybe editing it. Right. Yeah. And and so then coming back around to PowerPoint, because, uh, again, we, we've talked about how it, it's hard not to have visuals in a presentation these days, but some of the ones that I remember that have been the most uh, impactful to me when I'm in the audience are when there's just a picture yes. uh, on, on the screen and, and no words at all. And I love how you say in your book and at the beginning of this section that bullets are so called because they kill good presentations. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. that. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and we give some suggestion. Again, it's, it's a book about breaking the rules, so I don't want to give other people rules, but there are some guidelines that I follow, um, and I break them every now and then, but I, there, there's a ratio called 10-24, and what it means is no more than 10 words per slide, no smaller than 24-point type ever on a PowerPoint. Right. And, and that's really challenging for a lot of folks because there are cultures everywhere, I'm sure you know, Chicky, where every bit of information is crammed onto a PowerPoint slide because they right. treat it as a script and as a research document. Right. So w what I want people to do is it's not, that, it's not that the data isn't important. It's the placement of the data that we need to rethink. So right. in every PowerPoint, there's a notes section. And there's no reason that you can remove, you can take off all those numbers and all those crazy words and just show the bell curve that you're talking about in your PowerPoint. And in right. the notes section, there'll be all the data. And when you're done, you can hand out the slides with the notes to everybody that wants all the numbers and the data so they all get it, right? right? Or maybe you can have a handout that has all the information in a Word document, like a story with, with Excel spreadsheets for all the numbers. But your PowerPoint... It's about you standing up and being an expert, and it's a backdrop. And the right. minute you start cramming it with words, what do you think the audience is doing? 
They're reading well, they're the slides. they're not listening. No, right. They're reading the slides. So, exactly. yeah. It, and, you know, I also challenge people. There was one uh, wonderful class where I was working with aerospace engineers, and one of them completely got rid of his PowerPoint, and he handed out sheets of paper, and he had us build paper airplanes because it happened to illustrate the point he was talking about perfectly. And we suddenly had this tactile connection to the concept that he was talking about. What a creative right. way to change it up. Right. No, I love that. Uh, I, I love that. And I, I think the suggestion, um, and, and I certainly have worked on reducing the number of words. I don't know that I've ever been uh, quite that successful of getting, uh, you know, getting my words to the absolute minimum, but I love the idea of just a bell curve with no numbers on it whatsoever. <laughs> I think because uh, when I talk about social media, uh, I talk about relationship building and engagement, and one of the things about engagement is getting people to a point of intrigue where they actually want more information than you're giving. And I think that's a perfect example of creating intrigue. Oh, that's a, that is a great example. Absolutely. And, and the other thing is that people should see you as the one that they need to go to for that extra information. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you'll tell the story behind social media or they'll tell the story behind the bell curve because there is one there. It's not just data. Right. Right. And, you know, it's funny when I, when I think back to the beginning when we were talking about uh, what the goal is of, of the talk, I know the client who hires people like you and I to come and speak, they always have a goal. But my goal um, is always to get people to come up and want to talk to me afterwards. Oh, that's and, great. and I'm not very effective at that, I have to admit. Um, and I don't know whether I put people off, uh, you know, because I do disseminate a lot of information. Um, but I watch other people and, and you know, I'll, I'll be on a panel with somebody and, and people will line up to talk to the other people. And I always, you know, that that's kind of my own personal measurement. I don't know if you do that as well. But um, in, in admitting that I do that and admitting that that's my own personal measurement, I want to talk about the things that go wrong. Uh, because the last section of your book is actually about those things. And, you know, I would love, um, I'm going to go back and read the book in, in detail and, and make my own notes about different talks I've given. And hopefully the next time I do speak, I'm going to have a whole line of people lining up to talk to me. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's perfectly fine for you to have that purpose. So I hope that the book will help you in that instance, Chicky, think about, you know, um, what can I do to pique people's curiosity. What can I do to seem warmer and more approachable, right? It'll give you a whole bunch of questions and thoughts around, if that is your true purpose, then what are the things you can do to make them feel like it's okay to do that and, and to ask you questions, right? right? Um, now, as far as the oops stuff, <laughs> you're right. The, the last part of the book is about what everyone doesn't want to have happen but always does, and that's the unexpected, Right? I mean, I'm right. sure you've been in a million situations where something you didn't expect happened. So we call it oops to Eureka in, in uh, improv, and I talk about it in my first book as well. But oops is something that happens. So, you know, your technology might blow up and not go well. Right. Uh, you know, the fire alarm could go off, or you might forget something, or someone will leave the room that you didn't expect. It, it can be a million different things. And there is this little really sort of wonderful way of handling any oops, I think. And it's called acknowledge it, deal with it, 
move on. It's three steps. It's what every improviser does. Because what happens when something unexpected happens and the presenter acts like nothing is happening, um, because I've been told as a presenter just to ignore anything that goes wrong and, and no one will notice, and, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Everybody right. knows that something's going on and they're distracted. They're completely distracted until you deal with it. So first of all, saying, oh, wow, folks, it looks like the PowerPoint is stuck and isn't isn't advancing, or to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to pause for a minute. Sir, are you okay? You know, you're, someone's choking in the corner. <laughs> you, you've got to acknowledge something that's going on, or maybe there's a loud, loud noises going on next door that make it almost impossible to hear you. You've got to stop right. and say, wow, boy, they're having a good time over there. Um, listen, can I get some help maybe with uh, turning up our monitors so that we can be heard over that, or gosh, right, should we just right. go over there and join the party? Whatever it is, you, you need to, number one, Stop and acknowledge what's going on. And then number two, again, this is a lot like having control of your environment. You get to deal with it in any way you see fit. I've had my technology stop working, so I stop. I call up the tech people. I have them start working on it, and then I continue with my presentation until they get it fixed. And if they don't get it fixed, I've said, well, looks like we're not going to have a PowerPoint today, folks. Let's let the tech people sit down, and I'll finish without you know, or right. it looks like this has gone wrong, or we're not going to be able to play that video. Let's just go ahead with that. Is that okay with you? So you let them know <laughs> that you've made a decision, right? Right. You've dealt with it, and, and you're going to move on. And once you move on, this is another critical piece, don't ever keep referring back. I, I tell a story in the book, Chicky, about this really nice young attorney who showed up and thought that he – was going to be able to show a PowerPoint. Well, there was no projector there, and he couldn't do that. But he was very capable of doing his speech. He was charismatic. He really knew his stuff. It it happened to be on uh, intellectual property law. But I'm not kidding. Many, many times in just a 30-minute speech, he kept saying, well, if I had my PowerPoint here, it would say this. Oh, no. Or if I... He never moved on. And so we, you know, once he said, I don't have a PowerPoint, but I'll send it to you if you want to... That's all we cared about because everything he said was great. He knew his whole speech. Right. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Now, you've already talked a little bit about about nerves and a lack of confidence. Um, but, again, conventional wisdom says to just ignore your nerves and they will go away. And you've talked about breathing and, and getting through that. So... Um, I, I explained about my one instance where I had to speak from a, a written script and I looked up at the audience, started getting engaged with them and had been able to continue for a while, but then I looked back down and lost my place. Mm-hmm. So uh, it seems to me that that kind of falls into what you just said, that acknowledge that that went wrong um, and, and do take a, a second to breathe. But what if it, what if it really is just a panic attack and, and nerves? Uh, what do you do? You know, again, I think that you can deal with it in any way that you need to. Um, So I talk about people who are also overcome by emotion. You can stop speaking and walk over to your table or wherever. You can glance at your notes. You can get a sip of water. You can also say, excuse me, just for one moment, I need to fix something and walk off the stage. And they'll wait for you. It'll feel like a year to you, but it'll only be a few seconds to the audience. Right. Okay, if you need to gather yourself, um, and especially if you're feeling dizzy, you might say, please give me a moment, because you do not want to get sick or pass out on stage. Right. So you have the right to take care of yourself. 
Maybe you need to right. go and I say, um, you know, folks, I'm just going to sit down while I speak through this next section. And have a chair brought in, have a seat, finish. <laughs> so <laughs> you get to do whatever you need to do to make sure that you're okay. Right. And breathing right. and stopping. Sometimes I think we feel like once you start speaking, you have to keep speaking. Um, one of the things that I do is I ask a question of the audience and I engage them. And while they're talking, I take a few deep breaths and gather myself right. or get a sip of water. That's excellent. You know, you uh-huh. tell in, in this particular section, you tell a lot of, of interesting stories about different people that you have seen speak. And I, I think that for those who are listening to us today, um, I, I do want to just let them know that there's so much practical information uh, packed in this book. Are, are there any of those stories that you would like to share? Um, sure. Absolutely. There. My favorite, it's actually the closing big story of the book, and my editor loved it. <laughs> He's a great guy. It was about this leader, um, really a wonderful, charismatic leader. He came from overseas to help to work a research center here in the United States, and he loved it. He loved his team. His children and his wife were very happy where they had settled. They had a house, and he was doing great work. Um, now, his understanding was that he would be there for five years, well, about two and a half years in, he was doing so well that the company decided to move him back overseas. That, that was really difficult because the team really loved him. He loved his work. He was going to have to move his children in the middle of a school year. And so, you know, he was dealing with all this. And on the day that he gave his farewell speech at the research center, he choked up. He didn't see it coming. He was saying goodbye, and he kind of started to cry a little bit. So he stopped, and he breathed, and he pulled himself together. And he took a big gulp, and he went on and finished his speech. And it actually was so perfect and human. He was upset with himself, but the point is that no one else was. He had reacted in a completely human, emotional way. He did not see it coming. He was overcome for just a second. He handled it beautifully. And the outcome is that everyone at the research center felt even more connected to him because it showed that he cared. You know, they, a lot of people might have thought, oh, well, he just got another promotion. He won't even remember us. But that moment showed them just how much they had meant to him and how much he would miss them. And that was an incredibly effective emotional moment that he could, could have never seen coming. And he handled beautifully. Right. Yeah. Now, I, I talk to a lot of folks, Karen, who, you know, maybe have, have spoken within their company or, you know, they've been invited to speak at, at something, you know, at a, a, a small, low-risk venue, let's say, uh, you know, the Great American Teach-In at their school or something. But if they actually want to um, work toward getting on the speaker circuit, uh, of actually having people uh, pay uh, to listen to them. Can you give any advice there? I, I know that that's not what the book is, is talking about, but um, I know folks who are going to be listening to this who maybe aren't uh, doing a lot of presentations but, but really would like to hone that skill. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And I have a lot of people come up to me and ask me about that. I think that any opportunity you have to speak, first of all, like you said, is a good one. Uh, your school, your place of worship, the library, any place that needs a speaker, number one, to hone your skill, and then also to go anywhere that you feel you can get good instruction and support. So I have some people go to Toastmasters if they really are just beginners, and also the mm-hmm. National Speakers Association. I am a member. I love working with uh, the other 
uh, expert and professional speakers there. There is a ton of chapters all around the United States, and they help people who are interested in becoming paid speakers. So that's a great organization as well, and I'm sure that there are others. Those happen to be some that I know of. And um, also just sort of thinking about what do you want to say? What are you passionate about? And is it something that people want to hear about? What right. special thing can you bring to that subject is a great way to begin thinking about being a paid speaker. I mean, Chicky, I'd love to hear your advice because you certainly are one as well. Well, I, you know, I, I actually just talked to someone about this a couple of weeks ago, and they were saying that they wanted to do more speaking. I said, well, you know, do you want to be away from home all the time? Oh. <laughs> do you like flying? And, and yeah. because to me, I, I would like to do more speaking, but at the end of the day, I don't want to be away from home right now. It's a, it's a really important time in my kid's life because my husband is traveling a bit mm-hmm. and you know I've got a, a middle schooler and a high schooler and they're very busy in sports and music and and it really is a hassle when I have to be out of town. I, I can manage it but you know this is what I tell people that if you like being on the road, if you like hotels and you like uh you know flying and, and all all the things that are attendant to that, then you know, pursuing a, a career in speaking is a fine thing. I think the other thing is how how do those that get to be on the speaker circuit get there? And I think when you look at most people, they've either go, gone through an extraordinary life event, they have written a book, or they have been in a high-profile company or industry or, you know, some, some high-profile position that most people who are on the speaker, speaker circuit fall into one of those three things. Would you agree? Um, well, you know, absolutely, a lot of them do, and there are also people, again, who have an expertise arena that, that have right. something to speak about. I completely sympathize with how you're feeling. I have young kids, too, high school, actually high school, middle school, and grade school, and oh, wow. I'm so lucky because my husband has a ton of flexibility. So, for example, last year I was on the road more than I ever have been, and we found a way to manage that really effectively. I think the other thing, too, is that if you don't – one thing I did is that if I didn't want to go too far, I've really tried to cultivate speaking opportunities right in my area, so within just the three-state area that you can drive to and be back on the same day. And that might be another strategy if you want to speak, to just be in your area. Right. Yeah. Well, Karen, we have talked about so much, and uh, again, for those that either do a lot of speaking, even if if you're quite practiced at it, because I consider myself, um, you know, someone who's done a lot of speaking over the last decade, uh, but there is so much good information in this book that I really feel like the next time will almost be the first time for me of of actually applying all of these things. So again, Karen's book is Be the Best bad presenter ever and break the rules make mistakes and win them over well karen thank you so much for joining us today and uh, again this has been the executive girlfriends group and we are publishing this on our channel solutions live on blog talk radio and for more information about the executive girlfriends group please see www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com or follow us on Facebook. Karen, thanks again so much, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. 
innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald. Thank you.